Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, May 12th, 2015. I have had a very long debate with myself about this program. <laughs> the debate was over whether or not to play certain segments. I, if you're worried that, you know, maybe I'm losing my mind. I, I could be, but at least you understand the nature of the debate. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down and stop and open up your Bible and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There just is no shortage of crazy things being said out there, and we actually take the time to put God's Word back in context if it's being used at all, I have to almost put that caveat in nowadays. Uh, there's so many people who pass themselves off as Christian teachers and you know conference speakers and authors and things like that that uh, they're not even, for the most part, trying to even put forward a biblical teaching anymore. They might you know read a verse or something like that and then just wander off into their own thing. But oftentimes we get stuff that I mean it's I mean doesn't even pretend to be biblical anymore. So but we, <laughs> we we try to actually you know demonstrate from scripture that there is this thing called sound biblical doctrine. Yeah, there really is. And scripture actually uh the God the Holy Spirit through the apostle Paul has told us that pastors and teachers are not to be teaching anything other than sound doctrine and uh, that anyone who is a Christian pastor is to actually rebuke uh, those who teach uh, false doctrine and to warn Christ's sheep. And, uh, you know, basically protect uh, people from the deceits of the devil, if you would. Uh, the devil being the father of lies and uh, Christ being the truth, you know, the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except for through him. Uh, so the idea here is there is a such thing as truth. There is a such thing as error. There is a such thing as sound doctrine. There is a su such thing as false doctrine, heterodoxy, flat-out heresy, uh, things that put you outside of the faith because the God you believe in is actually an idol, although it's named Jesus. Uh, the, the God you may believe in may not actually be the bona fide for real Jesus. I, I know that sounds kind of like a strange concept. It's like, come on, there's only one Jesus. Yeah, yeah I, I understand that there is only one Jesus, and that's kind of the point, is that, uh, you know, if you say, you know, so tell me about the Jesus you believe in. Well, the Jesus I believe in was uh, actually pre-incarnate, uh, one of the spirit, many spirit children of um, Elohim, uh, you know, uh, he and his spirit wives on planet Kolob. You know, you sit there and go, well, that, that's not Jesus. But see, that the Jesus I'm describing there is none other than the uh, Jesus of Mormonism. So Paul kind of fleshes this out in Second Corinthians chapter 11. 
Here's what Paul writes. He says, I I wish you would bear with me uh, in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims to you another Jesus, uh, another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit, from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accept, well, then you put up with it readily enough. But see, the thing is, Paul's point is, is that there is no such thing as another Jesus, another spirit, and another gospel. These are counterfeits created by the devil and sent by his emissaries, if you would. People who are wolves dressed up in sheep's clothing, who are teaching false doctrines. So the idea is that Jesus warns us of false teachers and false prophets, false messiahs. You can That's what Christoi are. Uh, and, uh, you know, listen, the devil has been very active uh, in ba- basically producing counterfeits throughout the entire history of the Christian church. In fact, if you've spent any time reading the patristics, and you think, what's a patristic? But that's just a fancy term for the writings of the early church fathers. Yeah, you do, If you've done any patristic study at all, then you will know that, oh man, the Christian church from the beginning, in fact, you already see this in the time of the apostles. There are counterfeits coming in, denying what the, the apostles are teaching, teaching other things than the apostles. They're undermining the authority of the true apostles, and they're teaching false Christ, false Jesus, uh, false Jesuses, false spirits, different gospels. And uh, so the uh, the church, you got to remember this, is that the church is the church militant here until Christ returns. Uh, That being the case, we are all soldiers, no joke. And uh, a Christian who fails to understand that they are a soldier and that they have found themselves in the middle of a war that has been going on for millennia, uh, if you don't understand that, then there's a word for you, and that's called a casualty. And so there's a lot of casualties out there right now, you know, Christians sticking their heads in the sand and saying, mommy, 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 please make the bad people go away and thinking that that somehow that will magically get rid of things. If I just ignore the problem, it'll go away, right? No, (laughs) it won't. So uh, we spend some time here at Fighting for the Faith trying to equip you. And, you know, we're kind of like all over the map, if you would. Now, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith, I... Technically, it, it it's almost themed. <laughs> there's there's an outlier in the, what we'll be playing today, but uh, you'll kind of you know if you're if you're tuned to what's going on here, you'll kind of get it. Although the outlier still kind of fits in the general theme for today, it's not it's not a perfect fit. It's like one of those jigsaw puzzle pieces that you know it looks like it would fit, but you know the grooves don't really line up. It's kind of one of those, but you know I just pounded it into place and. And uh, said, there, we've got a a program, hence the debate that I was having with myself today. So uh, let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to begin with the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate Update. Now, yesterday, I had made mention of the fact that there is an upcoming um, program on the, uh, I think it's the Life Network and uh, it's featuring uh, so-called prophetesses, four of them, in fact. The yeah, Lifetime Network has announced the premiere to a date for their new reality show or docu-series fe- featuring four Christian women who believe God has given them powers to heal the sick 
see the future and rid people of their addictions. Yeah, so the name of the uh, program is called Preach. It premieres on June 5th, so we're going to actually take a listen to it. And although if you if you haven't seen the you know the premiere for this, you might want to take a look um, because there's something I saw in this that I, the only way I can describe it is is a prophetic bosom bump. You, you're thinking what? Well, let's put it this way. One of the prophetesses, in fact, we're going to be uh, spending a little bit of time listening to her. Her name is Dr. Takeda Williams. Um, uh, She is, well, um, she's kind of short and rotund, and she has large bosoms. And um, in the premiere, you know, the the preview for the upcoming Preach series, no joke. You've seen where, like, you know, people, you know, slay people in the spirit and stuff like that. She does the what I can only describe as a prophetic chest bump, you know, and it's a dude <laughs> that she does this to and never seen any lunacy like that. So I thought what we would do is, you know, in, in preparation for <clears throat> the um, the damage that will be done to the body of Christ as a result of this lifetime uh docu-series, well, we'll spend a little bit of time, you know, this week uh, taking a listen to Dr. Takeda Williams, we'll do that today, and uh, and start to prepare ourselves, and uh, so that we can legitimately say, you know, when there are uh, unbelievers out there mocking Christianity because of this program, we can legitimately say, no, 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 that's not Christianity, and, you know, you know biblical Christians who understand sound doctrine they're they're capable of spotting these phonies, and you basically call them for what they are. You see what I'm saying there? So uh, then, what we're going to do is we're going to switch gears, and um, this is part of the debate I've had with myself here: is that I've been listening to, no joke, a series of Mother's Day presentations, and of course, you know, Mother's Day was on Sunday, so coming through my you know, my two terabyte hard drive uh, and, you know, the different podcast streams that I subscribe to have been different Mother's Day messages. And for the most part, I've gone yawn. You know, it's, you know, a standard pablum. But, uh, you know, one of the things I've noticed is that uh, within the seeker-driven movement, there sure does seem to be a lot of, well, how do we put it this way, rebellion against God, all in the name of Mother's Day, where Mother's Day messages were delivered by mm, women, which God's word forbids. So, you know, but it's all about being relevant. You know, but uh, the other thing I saw and is a, a series of, you know, kind of themes in certain messages, especially even from Robert Morris about conception and birthing and stuff like that. So, you know, I don't think I'm going to play them all in one segment. In fact, I, uh, I've got a, um, a uh, XP Media uh, Rob Hodgkins, we'll listen to him. We'll uh, probably save Robert Morris to a little later in the week. And then even the President's Conference, yeah, it, uh, the President's Conference, C3, uh, Phil Pringle, I mean, he was, you know, basically claiming that he had the power to give uh, out hundreds of miracles, including the, the miracle of conception and stuff like It's just kind of one of those things where, uh, you know, how do we put this? Uh, prophetic family planning, you know, maybe that'd be the right way to talk about this. So we'll have an example of prophetic family planning, or at least birthing the birthing anointing today. And uh, and then in the second half of the first hour, we're going to be listening to a very, very seductive, somewhat bizarre uh, presentation by Erwin McManus at the Q Ideas Conference. 
And the name of it is What If? What If? And this is one of those presentations where you have to listen very carefully because it's super seductive because it takes the Christian church off mission. Uh-huh. Yeah, the, 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 think of it this way. is is that there's one person, and I mean this literally, one person who has the authority to set the agenda for what the Christian church is to be busy doing. And it isn't me. Nope. And it's not Rick Warren. Yeah, no, I know. It's um, And it's not Erwin McManus. It's actually Jesus Christ. And he's set the agenda for the church. And the agenda is to last until he returns. Uh, that's kind of the, you know, we call that the Great Commission. And, you know, and he's with us always, even until the end of the age. So the the church has standing orders. It has a mission statement, if you would. Although I think that's kind of a poor way to put it. But the idea is, is that this is what the church is to be busy doing. And anybody, regardless of how well-spoken they are, of how slick and polished, how popular they are, that comes along and offers an alternative uh, agenda, if you would, uh, an alternative mission, uh, even if they're just, I mean, it, it just sounds so appealing, we are to reject it because there's only one person, one who gets to set the agenda, and that's the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. This would be Jesus Christ, the one who conquered victorious from the grave, God in human flesh. He's the only one who has the authority to set the agenda for the church. So when a church um, follows a different uh, agenda, you know, and claiming, you know, divine inspiration for doing so, we know that they're not telling the truth. So which kind of then leads to hour number two. Hour number two, we're going to head down to potential church. Yeah, uh, Troy Gramling. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, years ago, this uh, this is a church, I think it started off as Flamingo Road Baptist Church. And, uh, and you know, they had the uh, vision casting leader there, Dan Sutherland of Church Transitions, Inc. And uh, this is a guy who transitioned a whole bunch of congregations from being traditional churches into being purpose-driven churches uh, in much kind of a kind of like a um, hostile corporate takeover fashion if you would and we've covered that here at fighting for the faith if you want to go back and listen to the archives uh, there's a program we did called the uh, you know hostile takeover tactics of the purpose-driven church something to that effect type in dan sutherland in our search engine and Listen to that episode. I mean, it's absolutely stunning and frightening all at the same time. Well, Flamingo Road Baptist Church, um, when Dan Sutherland left, he he appointed to be the vision casting leader of uh, Flamingo Road Baptist Church, Troy Gramling. And uh, no sooner did he take over that they changed their name to Potential Church. And see, they they ceased to be a church at that point. They're they're just a church in Potentia. And uh, and so uh, this past Sunday, uh, well, actually a week ago Sunday, uh, Troy Gramling uh, basically did a sermon entitled "What's Keeping You Up at Night" and talking about insomnia. And uh, yeah, of course, I mean that's really practical and stuff. But uh, we'll take a listen to that because I think it fits with the general theme. Although we do have an outlier today uh, with what's going on in today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. So with that in mind. It's uh, time for you to settle in, make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground that we need to cover. And uh, since we're going to begin with the Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate Update, kind of in two parts, well, that requires us to do this. Down at an English fair, one evening I was there. 
when I heard a showman shouting underneath the flare. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. There they are standing in their row. Big one, small one, some as big as your head. Give them a twist, a flick of the wrist, that's what the showman said. I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Every ball you throw will make me rich. There stands me wife, the idol of me life. Sing and roll a ball, a ball, a penny a pitch. Sing and roll a ball, a ball, a penny a pitch. Sing and roll a ball, a ball, a penny a pitch. Roll a ball, a ball, roll a ball, a ball. Sing and roll a ball, a ball, a penny a pitch. That's right, I've got a lovely bunch of coconuts. Now, what we're going to be listening to, it's not the best radio is the best way I can put this. We're going to be listening to a uh, premiere video uh, put out by Lifetime introducing their um, upcoming docuseries entitled Preach, which follows four charismatic Holy Ghost uh, prophetesses, that's what they claim, and uh, based on what I've seen and heard, there is absolutely no reason whatsoever to believe that God the Holy Spirit has anything to do with this. But uh, let's listen to the uh, Lifetime preview, if you would, for their upcoming docuseries, and I'll try to describe what it is that I'm seeing uh, when the uh, audio doesn't quite make sense. You know, you'll kind of get what I'm saying. Here we go. When you get four prophetesses in the room, you better get ready because an explosion is going to happen. Boom. Yeah, an explosion is going to happen. And she she basically, the boom, you just heard her go boom. She just threw her hand at you know somebody in the audience, you know, as if you know God the Holy Spirit is making her be able to slay people in the spirit. It's quite the show. Tonight is a night for people that are ready to receive God. Yeah, and what you just missed there was the uh, prophetic bosom bump. Um, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that has nothing to do with God, the Holy Spirit. Oh my God, this is real. Come on! Yeah, she just blew on some lady and she fell over. There's a prophet in the city. Yeah, no, there's no prophets there, unless you're spelling it P R O F I T. Yeah, the name of it's Preach. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of what's coming up, and, you know, you can find this on the Internet. Um, so what I thought I would do is, uh, you know, let's take a look at what's coming up, uh, you know, on this series. In fact, here's the Christian Post article on this. I read a little bit of this already. Uh, this is by Nicola Menzi of the uh, Christian Post, and it says, um, Lifetime Network has announced the premiere date for a new reality show or docuseries featuring four Christian women who believe that God has given them powers to heal the sick, see the future, and rid people of their addictions. In other words, these women are totally delusional. Lifetime is premiering its new docuseries, Preach, on Friday, June 5th, 2015, who I can hardly wait. Quote, known as prophetesses, these women speak as interpreters through whom the will of God is expressed. In order for their legacy to continue, they must enlist protégés and teach them how to carry on their gift. These queens of the church... Hang on a second here. I'm... <coughs> I... 
Whew, yeah, I can't believe those words actually passed through my lips without me vomiting. Whoa! Okay, <laughs> shabba. Anyway, <laughs> okay, so these queens of the church each have different styles to their own special way of delivering God's message. I guarantee you none of them actually are delivering God's message, but all are united in their love for the Lord. No, no, the Jesus they believe in is not the Jesus of Scripture. Lifetime states in a press release, the four Ohio women at the center of the new six-episode series are Belinda Scott, described as a major prophetess, <laughs> right? Who co-pastors the New Spirit Revival Center uh, Ministries? Uh huh. Yeah. See, the, right there. You know, somebody claiming to be a major prophetess and then claiming to be a co-pastor. Just those. That sentence proves that they have nothing to do with God, the Holy Spirit, because God, the Holy Spirit, has already spoken, and women are not to be pastors. So, somebody claiming to be a prophetess and also a co-pastor. You know, right away, this person, God, the Holy Spirit, is not speaking to them. They may be getting spiritual in, you know, inside information, but it's not from a holy source. You know what I'm saying? Then the one we're going to be listening to in just a minute, Takeda Williams, uh, dubbed the Beyonce of preach, the preaching world. You just can't make this stuff up. Le- uh, leads along with her husband, Apostle Roderick A. Williams. You see, yeah, we covered the fact that the apostolic office, that's closed yeah, there ain't nobody alive who can actually meet the qualifications to be an apostle. <clears throat> they are of the Impact Christian Center. Linda Rourke, referred to as Blue-Eyed Soul Sister, is said to have a passion to see people saved, healed, and delivered. And Kelly Cruz, who was described by the network as just developing her own ministry. Apparently, uh, Kelly Cruz, has got, uh, she's still working on her prophetic chops. So I went on to uh, YouTube. Did a little bit of scouring around to see if we can figure out if, uh, you know, what this uh, Takeda Williams is all about. You know, just to kind of, you know, key in on that. And, well, the best thing I can say is you might want to be sitting down. Here's an example of the preaching of Dr. (coughs) Takeda Williams, the Beyonce of preaching. (laughs) In your life. Is going to be contingent on how you think. My assignment today is to help upgrade your thought life. Mm, yeah. I'm a powerful preacher. Everybody know that. Yeah, no, I can already tell you're not. But today I want to take you to school. Yeah, do you do that? I want this word to get in your head. Uh, don't worry. If it gets in there, I'll be sure to throw it out. So if you'll walk with me and let me teach you, I'll coach you into a better life. Because mm-hmm, that's what Christianity is all about, coaching people into better lives. Uh, you do know that uh, by doing what you're doing right now, you're actually in defiance and rebellion against what God's word says. Do you want it? No. Somebody say amen. No. Amen. Sound like y'all ready. Proverbs 23, 7. Uh-huh. Proverbs 23, 7. See, this is you know, yet another example that uh, the person we're de- listening to is not a prophetess. Yeah, see, God doesn't twist his own words. And um, and so Proverbs 23, 7, you might have heard it, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he, right? Yeah, that's what we're going to hear, and over and again, we have to demonstrate that uh, the, the way people like her and others twist the scripture, it ain't saying what she's saying, it's saying, but we'll show that in a second. I want a million dollar head to go with my million dollar spirit, and when you got a million dollar head that go with your million dollar spirit, then God don't mind blessing you with a million dollar crib. 
right there um yeah teaching for shameful gain things that you ought not to teach so she's a prosperity prophetess well yeah so if you've got a million dollar head and a million dollar spirit god doesn't mind giving you a million dollar crib that would be a home uh uh-huh right proverbs 23 Verse number seven. Yeah. Let's read together collectively and then you can take your seat. We'll read several scriptures today as I coach you through the word. Uh Let's read. For as he thinketh in his heart, that really means mind. As he thinketh in his heart or his mind, so is he. Who is this that's doing the thinking or the thinketh-ing? Um, yes, he kind of notice Proverbs 23 verse seven begins with the word four. And you'll notice if you have your Bible open, um, like, you know, the ESV, the, um, the, uh, word four is not capitalized. In fact, you'll notice that in the line immediately preceding it, there, it, the, the line in verse six, it ends with a comma. Mm-hmm. How many of you, when you're reading something, begin by reading in the middle of a sentence? A- any of you do that normally? I don't. I mean, when I read the newspaper, when I read you know, a story or a blog post or even a book, um, generally I begin by reading the beginning of a sentence. Mm-hmm. It's true. And so who of you, when you're reading, you know, start in the middle of a sentence? I, I'd like to know if you'd really do that. And why, if you don't do that when you're like reading the newspaper, you're reading email, you're reading anything else, even a tweet, um, you know, how come you don't start in the middle of a sentence? Because you can't understand what what's going on unless you actually begin at the beginning of the sentence, right? So uh, Proverbs 23 is verse seven is not the place to start. If you're trying to catch the whole gist of what is going on in this particular segment of the Proverbs, you might want to start at Proverbs 23, one, although in this case, it's not necessary. All you got to do is read Proverbs 23, starting at verse six, continue with the sentence and, you know, and then finish when the sentence is done. So the sentence itself begins in Proverbs 23, verse 6. It finishes in 7, and there's kind of a follow-up thought right after that. Here's what it says, Proverbs 23, verse 6. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy, semicolon. Do not desire his delicacies, comma. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating, period. So there it is. Do not eat the bread of a stingy man. Do not desire his delicacies, for he is like one who is inwardly calculating, Next thought, it's still part of it. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. There you go. That's the thought, and that's what the passage is all about. But already we've got a problem here with Takeda Williams. Sorry, Dr. Takeda Williams, um, the Beyonce of preaching, because we can already tell in her setup that she's going to end up twisting this passage. So let's continue with her preaching. Here we go. His heart or his mind so is he eat and drink saith he to thee but his heart is not with thee emphasis is on a clause for as you think as a man thinketh in his mind that's exactly who you are 
and that's exactly who you will be. Yeah, the text doesn't say anything about you being what you are, what you will be by your thinking. You just stuck that into the text. Be seated as we talk about the power of the thought. The power of the thought. The, the power of the thought. So you've already twisted this passage, and you've read more than most people read. By the way, if you're trying to twist this passage, you might want to just say, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Just say that part if you're going to really try to, you know, to deceive people. You know, On Wednesday, we had good Bible study Wednesday, didn't we? We had good Bibles. Thank you for that one clap out of all these people. <laughs> Y'all better be glad I feel J-O-Y in my spirit. But seriously, that word from Wednesday was so powerful. It was revelation knowledge. And we were talking about the significance of the word of God. We talked, as we recap briefly on Wednesday, that the Word, uh, in the beginning was the Word, John 1, 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 3 says, all things were made by him who this word, and without him was not anything that was made, made. Everything that exists in life literally came into manifestation because of a spoken word. Yeah, that's how God did it. You can never have what you don't think and what you do not speak. Uh, what? Yeah, see, I'm not God, uh, Takeda. And so God says, teach them how to upgrade their thought life. Oh, yeah, so God told you that, really? I don't think so. Teach them that before I put the money in your hand, teach them how to think like millionaires before I give them another dollar. Uh-huh. In other words, uh, Dr. Takeda Williams is the kind of wolf that preys on, no joke, uh, P-R-E-Y-S, preys on, uh, preys upon people who are suffering under poverty. And uh, you know, she's promising them in the name of God that if they upgrade their thinking and their thoughts and speak you know, millionaire things into existence, uh, that they will come into existence and they will no longer be poor. This this is the um, bottom of the barrel as far as Bible twisters and wolves are concerned, as far as I'm concerned. Teach them how to think futuristic before I release what I have for them in their future. So, uh, in the beginning... Yeah, God didn't tell you that. Beginning was the word. And yeah, anarche and halagas, kai halagas and proston theo. Yeah, John 1, 1. Um, that's about Jesus. It's not about us speaking millionaire things into our life. This word, watch this. Uh, yeah, we know the word is talking about Jesus, but this word is an embodied thought. Say that the word. Yeah, no, the logos is Christ. And the word became flesh. Read John 1. Continue reading. But you speak out of your mouth. You just spoke word. That word that came out of your mouth, watch this, is an embodied thought. The words that you speak out of your mouth is just nothing more but your thoughts with clothes on. 
Yeah, she's quite the charlatan, isn't she? Are you hearing what I'm saying? Oh, I'm hearing it. The words that you speak is a product of your imagination. Oh, yeah, product of my imagination, yeah. Because everybody knows, you know, Christianity is all about, you know, your imagination and, you know, things like that. Yeah, she's... um. <laughs> like I said, quite the charlatan. Now, unfortunately, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've he- heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. Uh, we have an extended Erwin McManus update, and we'll have to save the birthing thing for you know, Thursday. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to realize that uh, people who talk about Proverbs 23.7 as your thoughts creating your reality and making you into a millionaire, that they're complete charlatans. Yeah. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith in Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to uh, specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it moving along got time for a vision casting leader update that's what Erwin McManus is he's a futurist vision casting leader Vision. Full 
it's the night I'm gonna take the word and twist it That's enough of that. That's our Casting Vision song performed by Los Lobos Ministry Records. Yeah, Casting Vision. So uh, what we're going to be listening to next is uh, a presentation delivered by Erwin McManus. He's a futurist and a vision-casting leader of the Mosaic uh, Church out in the uh, Los Angeles-San Gabriel Valley area. I do think that they kind of move around. At least that's what they've done in the past. Not sure if they even have a building. But uh, Erwin McManus was invited to speak at the Q uh, conference, you know, ideas for the common good, if you would. And the name of his uh, speech was What If, What If, What If. And uh, when you hear somebody talking like this and talking about what if, what if the church is this or what if the church did that? What if, what if, unless the, the thing that follows the what if, you know, let me give you an example of where this would be an okay thing. You know, where if I were to on the program say, what if the Christian church were to get rid of all of the vision casting leaders and get back on mission, you know, making disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching uh, all that Christ has commanded. You see, you know, that's where you, you, the what if might actually have a legitimate function, because right now we are way off topic. But what Erwin McManus is proposing in this uh, speech of his from the Q conference uh, is basically utter rebellion against the mission given to the Christian church. No joke, although he's very slick in how he presents it. So here's Erwin McManus and his what if speech. Here we go. It's great to be with you this afternoon. And Gabe, thank you so much for trusting me with nine minutes. And I appreciate that kind of stewardship. And, uh, yeah, that would be Gabe Lyons. And you gave me such a narrow topic on what if. And, uh, and so sort of limited in my scope. And as I thought about what if, what really has come to my mind is, is what if we move from being a what is to a what if culture. Because the reality is that the church is really not a, a what if culture. We're a, a what is culture. Mm-hmm. You mean like a what is revealed culture? Like a, uh, like we are about what Christ has told us to do, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching all that Christ has commanded? You mean that kind of thing? Like what is you know the mission that has been given by the only one who has the authority to give it? 
We're informed by what is, and our precedent has more power than our imagination. I started thinking about the different things that I've been involved in throughout my life. And sometimes it can look like I'm a serial entrepreneur. Sometimes you can realize that I'm unemployed a lot. And I've had a series number, uh, a number of failures. And some people, like my daughter Mariah, when she was two or three years old, it was so obvious that she was a musician. We were changing channels, and we hit this orchestra. And when we changed the channel again, she started singing back in perfect pitch what the orchestra was playing. And I told my wife, go back, go back. And I said, watch. And, And Mariah just started mimicking what was on the television. And so around the age of three, I just started writing songs with her and, 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 and telling her, all right, just start singing. And I would just put it to music and, and, and try to connect with her this extraordinary, obvious talent that was given to her uh, somehow in her genetic code. I, I, I admire people who are uh, prodigious, people who, are, um, who have these extraordinary talents, you know, the, the Mozarts of the worlds and, and the Picassos of the worlds and, and, and uh, the Ryans and the Mariahs of the world. Maybe you're one of those people that you just had such a, this incredible talent from your first breath, but I'm not one of those people. You know, I, I'm one of the people that has been searching for his particular talent all of his life, you, you, you know, those kinds of people. And I, I told my son, if you don't have any obvious talent, you have the gift of leadership. And, because there are people, they just become world-class celloists or, or uh, Olympic sprinters. They, they, they are mathematical savants or uh, they have uh, the gift of painting or sculpting. And, and there's a lot of us in this room that, that in, in one spectrum of analysis would be the no perceivable talent category. And that's why we're leaders is because we then begin to imagine a creation that is beyond our own capacity. And if you're like me, you begin to experience a level of angst because you can see something that's beautiful, but you have never been given the talent or the capacity to execute it or create it. You can know that a story needs to be told, that a world needs to be created, that a future needs to be shaped, that that creates a dissonance between the ideal that that moves you and motivates you and the reality of your limited gifts, talents, and abilities. And and if anything, I'm immensely grateful that God decided to make me so untalented so that I would find myself dependent on the gifts and talents, the genius and beauty inside of so many people. This sounds so pious, but he's literally... This is setting the framework for an outright rebellion against what Christ has told the church to be doing. I, I, I discovered that I'm one of those unemployable people because you can't really figure out what I do. But if you move me from the room, it's, the room stops doing it. And I go, you see, that's what I do. I do that. What is that? I don't know. I just, just move me and you'll see what it is. And what you find is that the church, and not only the church, but culture, societies, nations, empires are built and unleashed by men and women who are driven mad by an imagination of a world that could exist but lack... Mm, Men and women driven mad by an imagination of a world that could exist. Yeah, here we go again. 
Yeah, poor Erwin McManus. He's being driven mad by an... Uh, he can imagine a world that could exist in the church, but just doesn't. If only the church would just give in to his imagination. Personal creative talent to make it happen unless they create this beautiful thing called community. And for me, that's the what if. What if the church became the human incubator for creating the world's best future? What if the church became the creative incubator for the world's best future? Hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but is that not already what the church is? Now, you've got to think with me for a second here. Um, I'm not talking about the here and the now. I'm not even talking about in this current age. The church, if you would, truly is the incubator for the world's best future. The world's best future, though, comes through the death of this current time-space continuum, the destruction of this planet by fire, and the elements melting and things like that. Yeah, that's right. God's going to come in judgment, and uh, I'm sorry, Christ is coming in judgment, and uh, this world as we know it is going to pass away. And then Jesus is going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And those who are in Christ, who have penitent faith in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, whose sins have been washed away, uh, and trust in him alone for their salvation, they will be raised again from the grave. Uh That's right. They will be raised again with new bodies, no sin, totally immortal, and they will live forever and ever in a new heaven, new earth. Actually, we live on the new earth, and God makes his dwelling place with, well... With man, that's what Scripture says. So yeah, we've got we've the church kind of already is incubating, if you would, uh, you know, people for that best humanity to come. But it's not about changing, transforming this world and turning it into the kingdom of God, so to speak, you know, through community or whatever. Um, no, it's by calling people to repent of their sins, trust Christ, and then die. Yeah, no, no joke. Uh, we're all on our way to our death. And then upon Christ's return, we'll be raised from the grave, and there's that new heavens, new earth thing. So, yeah, but that's not, you know, see, this is not what he's talking about. But what if we walked away from our security in the what is and began to live in this mystery of the what if? You live in the mystery of the what if. Why would I do that? Christ has not called us to do that. If Mosaic is anything as a community of faith, it is that she has never found her what is. <laughs> there are some things that are incredibly reproducible, like McDonald's. And aren't we grateful for that? That's a joke. <laughs> Just I'll, I'll cue you when you're supposed to laugh. Starbucks. And there's something strange inside of us that at first we're really grateful there are franchises. And then later we learn to despise them. Because I can tell you, I've traveled the world and I've been so grateful when I've seen a McDonald's in the middle of some obscure country when I've been really, really hungry after a while. And even the smell of grease is so appetizing. There's a sense for a season when Starbucks was spreading around the world where you felt a sense of, of connectedness and, and community and you found your place around the world. Oh, there's a Starbucks. My wife used to mock me and say, every time we pass a Starbucks, you have to say, there's a Starbucks. I don't say that anymore. Now I go, oh, let's go to Pete's. Let's go to intelligentsia. And there's something inside of you that at first longs for standardization so you can make sense of the world, and then something that causes us to despise standardization because it loses its sense of self. 
Yeah, so, yeah, standardization apparently is the enemy of the, that sense of self. And the last thing you would want is a church that had, you know, like standard doctrine, standard practice, standard ecclesiology, you know, things like that. And what's happened is that we as the church have chosen to live in this space of standardization and predictability and security. Yeah, we've chosen that, or did Christ choose that for the church? Because, I mean, Scripture makes it clear there's particular offices that the church has, the office of pastor, you can say the office of deacon. Um, and you, there could be a little bit of a debate over the office of bishop, but you, you get what I'm saying. And that there's sound doctrine that is to be uh, taught from generation to generation, the faith once delivered to the saints. So there's standardization and doctrine and message. Um, so yeah, we've got a we've got an issue here, Irwin. It sounds to me like you you want a, us to embrace the mystery of the what if and abandon the what is because you know the what is is also standardized. It's we despise it now. You know we should despise it the way we despise McDonald's and the way we despise Starbucks. And so we live in this what is reality, and then we talk about things like creating culture, affecting the future, creating the future and we, yeah, where in scripture are we called to create culture realize that we actually do not have the fundamental core values of a what if because they violate our core values around the what is yeah so yeah our, our what is core values conflict with the what if core values right and i have no idea where you're getting any of this from scripture when i became a, a follower of christ I, I didn't feel like I was properly equipped to believe because faith became about what we knew, not what we imagined. Uh, <laughs> you didn't feel equipped as a Christian because faith is about what we know. You, you mean like the God who's revealed himself in Christ, yeah, the God that we know because he's revealed himself, the God that we know has done particular things because he's revealed in his word the things that he's done. And so there's doctrines and teachings, and you know we know this because God has revealed this. You would rather embrace the God we don't know? What if the church became the epicenter of human creativity and human imagination? Yeah, then it would become a hotbed of heresy because imagination is not needed when it comes to uh, you know proclaiming the faith once delivered to the saints. What is was called for is not creativity and imagination, but fidelity. I was a futurist for 20 years for companies and organizations. I realized the reason I was a futurist outside of the church is because the church wasn't interested in the future. And when I would work with churches and organizations and denominations, people would come and say, how are you able to have such keen insights in the future? I said, I don't have any keen insights in the future. I just see the present really clearly. Most people are living in the past. And the present terrifies them. What if... We created the kind of environment where people didn't have to go outside the church to dream and imagine and create the future. What if we didn't have... What if we... What? Create the future? What are you talking about? Where in Jesus' mandate for the church are we told to do any of the things that you're proposing here? And why is it that you're speaking to a bunch of uh, Christian leaders and spewing this nonsense as if this is what we're to be doing? Matthew chapter 28, I'll start at verse, at verse 18. Jesus came to them, the disciples, and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. This is what we're to be doing, by the way. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and, and uh, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
So where can we go right now to find what Christ has commanded us? There's only one place you can go. That's the written word of God. And then Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. In other words, this is what the church is to be about and doing uh, until Christ's return. We, we, don't, we don't create the future. We're to go and make disciples. Future creating is not part of the mandate of the church, if I can be so blunt. So we've got a, we got a huge problem, and then you know, Luke's version of the uh, of the Great Commission is found in Luke twenty four. I'll start at verse thirty six. Thus it is written that the Messiah should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. This is Jesus Jesus speaking, and that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. That would include twenty first century America. And, um, yeah, to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay until you are clothed with power from on high. So here's the idea. The church has a mandate from the only person who has the authority to give a mandate to the church, and that would be its king, Christ. Here's the mandate. We are to make disciples, not the future, we are to make disciples of all nations, Baptized, te- baptizing and teaching all that Christ has commanded. And the, the, the central message is repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And this is to be proclaimed to every single nation. And this is what the church is to be doing from the time of the inception of the church, the beginning of the church, until the time when Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. So here we got Erwin McManus just bemoaning the fact that the church is settled for the what is and is not a place where we can have creativity and create the future and live in the mystery of the what if. And yet I, when I read Scripture, I don't see anything in Scripture that um, would lead me to believe that this, the church, anybody in the church, living or dead, or yet alone Erwin McManus, has the authority to take the church off of the mission that it has been given and give it an alternate mission, the, you know, the, the mission of living in the what if and the creating of the future and all this kind of nonsense, you know, and to be creative and imaginative. We're to be faithful. That's what we're called to do. Go outside of this narrative of Christ to invent and to create this beautiful reality that is known as the future. Most of us have a passive view of the future, a view of the future that it already existed, it's already determined, that it already is going to be whatever it's going to be, and we wrap that up in our theology and our faith. So people who have a dynamic view of the future, that the future is created by human choices and human action, and for us, we know that it's an integration of this divine act and this human will. What if we were the stewards of God's future? We've been called to be the stewards of Christ's message, and I'll leave the future to God. What if the church's principal role was to be agents of change to create a future that is only in the imagination of God? Yeah, again, how am I supposed to figure out what's in the imagination of God? I have no way of getting into his brain. He's going to have to reveal something to me, and then, you know, and then when he reveals it, you know, I'm going to have to be able to trust that it's actually from him and not a piece of undigested pizza that's stuck in my colon. Um, so, yeah, we got a problem here. Um, I, I have no idea what you're talking about or where we're supposed to get this imagination of God's future kind of thing and then supposed to execute on it to create it. Because Christ hasn't told us to do any such nonsense. Yeah. I remember speaking at Columbia University, and I was thrown into a debate with a scientist and an ethicist, 
And the, and the whole conversation is what can be known. And the scientist says only empirical information can be known. And the Kantian ethicist said only human actions can be known. And then it was my turn. And I said, I have to admit, I know something I'm not supposed to know. See, because as a follower of Christ, what I know are things that we shouldn't know, but you can know things you're not supposed to know because we humans are designed for multiple layers of knowing. Yeah, I I have no idea what you're talking about because when it comes to the things of God, the only things I know about God are what he's revealed, straight up. And, uh, And so when it comes to what the church is to proclaim, it's what we know about God. And know with certainty. And the only thing that, things that we can know with certainty about God are not found inside of my heart or in multiple layers of meaning and things like that. It's found in God's written, revealed word. Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you got this one right, Peter, and that's how I know you cheated. Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. I love this window in to the potential of human action and interaction. Window into the potential of human action, uh uh-huh. That God would whisper into the human imagination a picture of what he wants to create. Yet where in Scripture does it say that God's going to whisper into our imaginations a picture of what he wants to create? Where are you getting any of this? And by the way, Erwin McManus is ginormous. He is near the top of the uh, the you know pecking order in the seeker driven leadership network. I mean this this is just flat out rebellion against God. And that we are creators of the invisible when we choose to act what God has spoken and materialize that which is only known in eternity. God bless. Mm-hmm. So there you go. That's the entirety of Erwin McManus's "What If." Lecture from um, the Q conference put on by Gabe Lyons. Dangerous, absolutely dangerous stuff because really what that is, that is the uh, speaking of a manifesto, a manifesto against the uh, Great Commission. That is a manifesto to embrace nonsense and reject what it is that we've received. No joke. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, a, a sermon from Potential Church about you know having problems sleeping at night and insomnia. What's keeping you up? Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. No itching ears are scratched here. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... listening to Byron Christian Radio. We're going to take a look at the ecclesiastical model employed by much of American evangelicalism today, especially as put forward by the seeker-driven movement. Chris Rosebro talking about his presentation at this summer's Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. We're going to take a look at where this idea of a vision-casting leader comes from, what its main tenets are, 
and we're going to compare that so-called ecclesiastical office to the biblical office of pastor to see if the two are actually synonymous and interchangeable or if this concept of a vision-casting leader actually turns a pastor into a false prophet. You can meet and hear Chris Rosebro making the case against vision-casting leaders in the church June 19th and 20th at the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference in Collinsville, Illinois. For more information, visit issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review time. Heading back down to Potential Church. Yeah, they're no longer a church. They're just a church in Potentia. Every now and then we check in to see if they're ready to become a church again. And uh, thus far, there's no indicator that they've even moved in the direction of actually becoming a church again. So it's very, very sad. the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Potential Church. Not a church, just a church in Potential. Troy Grambling presiding. They're in uh, Cooper City, Florida. The uh, name of the uh, sermon that we're going to be listening to is entitled Insomnia. What keeps you up at night? Oh, man. With a name like that, I begin to think that... uh, Troy Grambling is off mission. I mean, think of it this way. If we're supposed to be teaching all that Christ has commanded us, you're going to find that only in Christ's Word, which is all of Scripture, by the way. And I don't seem to remember the insomnia passages in Scripture, unless you're talking about, you know, maybe worrying and things like that. But we'll see what Troy does with this. Let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Troy Grambling. And his sermon entitled, Insomnia, What Keeps You Up at Night. Here we go. You know, I was thinking this this week as we um, get ready for this series and everything, and the mission, whether you know it or not, the mission at Potential Church is... Oh, now, hold on a second here. He's leading off with his mission. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Any church that is a Christian church, what do you think their mission is? I just read it in the uh, in hour number one from Matthew 28 as well as Luke 24. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that I have commanded, uh, preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. They have, you, you take Luke 24 and Matthew 28, squish them together, you kind of get something like that. So you think that's what's going to come out of Troy Gramling's mouth here? What's What do you think he thinks the mission of potential churches? They're not really a church yet. Um, what do you think he thinks? See, this is probably the reason why they will continue to be a church in Potentia. But what do you think is going to come out of his mouth? Is it going to be something along the lines of the Great Commission, make disciples, baptizing, teaching, all the Christ has commanded? Yeah, no. To partner with people to reach their God potential. Mm-hmm. So the mission there is to 
partner with people to help them reach their God potential. In other words, they've got an alternate mission for their church that is not the same mission that the, the, that Christ has given to his churches, which is why they're not really a church. When we say that, we don't mean that we all have potentials to be God. What we mean is that God gave all of us a sense of potential. And everything we do at this church, that mission statement determines what we do. So everything that we do, we do so that you can reach your potential. You can reach your potential. Now, notice what he said. That that. that mission statement is basically decides everything they do there at potential church yet that means they're in rebellion against the mission that christ has given his church as a husband or a wife maybe a college student a business leader whatever it is that you do i believe that the bible teaches that you are to do it in it uh, significantly. And so whether it be what's going on over there with toddlers or the students or what's going on in here, whether it be Viva every year or what the mission team does on sa- uh, Saturday or when they go to Cuba, several of them just got back from it. It's all to make you who God made you to be, who God created you to be. And yet that's not the mission Christ gave his church. And that's what we're about. And, you know, the reason I bring it up today is because one of the things that are coming up in just um, um, a couple of months is our Uproar Conference, okay? And if you, you've probably heard about it, but if you haven't, you might jot down these dates. It's August the 6th through the 8th. That's a Thursday, a Friday. And a Saturday morning. Now we've got some incredible uh, speakers. We got Robert Madu, who has spoke here on the weekend. Maybe you've heard him. We have Rich Wilkerson Jr. He's got his own reality show. It's, I mean, and then of course Tyler and Corey. It's going to be an incredible, incredible two and a half days. And if you come, yeah, two and a half days without any sound biblical doctrine. Yeah, that should be quite a conference. You will take steps towards your potential. Okay, because if you and I are going to be everything God created us to be, there's effort involved. That's why most people don't. I mean, most people fall far less than what they could have been because there's a price. Success never goes on sale. So I I, and I tell you this weekend because this is the last weekend that the like early bird tickets are discounted. And I encourage you to get some for you, get for your friends. You know, part of reaching your potential is actually bringing people along on the journey with you. You know, that's one of the most that's what it means to parent. Right? Is when you're a parent, you're bringing somebody along, your kids along with you. That's what it means to be in a relationship. I don't want to be in a relationship with somebody that's pulling me backwards. I want to be in a relationship with somebody who's challenged me to go forward. And, and so that's what it's all about. So pick up those tickets. They're out there in the lobby. And um, this is the last early bird weekend. And then next weekend is what? Yes. How many of you um, are moms or have ever had a mom? All right, that's just about all of us. So uh, it's my prayer that you will leverage the holiday to get your family here. If you're a mom, it's the only time I would tell you make them feel guilty if they don't come with you, okay? And we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to honor our moms, and it's going to be an amazing, amazing weekend. You know, I was thinking last week I brought out my pillow, you know, the things that kind of help us to sleep. How many of you have ever had at one time or another trouble going to sleep? Okay, All right, you just you just couldn't sleep. And talk last week. Sometimes it's a pillow like this, a feather pillow. The great thing about a feather pillow is if you wake up in the night and it's kind of hot, you can fluff it and turn it over, and it's oh, it's so nice and cool. I mean, I just, I just love that. But sometimes you know you got so much going on, even the right pillow 
won't let you go to sleep. So at home, I have some of these herbs. They're called Rapid Sleep PM. Three milligrams of melatonin per day, all right? And then it's got other stuff that it won't tell you what it is, but it's supposed to help you go to sleep. It's got hops and valerian root and all kinds. Anyway, it's got these herbs. You take this, it's supposed to help you go to sleep, you know? It's supposed to make you more sleepy when you got all these things going on in your mind. And then uh, Stephanie, my wife, she's got uh, into these like essential oils, okay? This one's called Relax. You just kind of unscrew it, you smell it, you put it on your sinuses, and for some reason you put it on the bottom of your feet, and it's supposed to help you go to sleep, okay? And she's got all kinds of these little doodads here. But if the pillow doesn't work, if the herbs don't work, if the essential oils don't work, this always does. NyQuil. Okay? A little bit of NyQuil will go a long way. I thought, you know, why is it that we have such a difficult time sleeping? I I think it's because our minds are preoccupied. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, How many, anybody here go to sleep with uh, with the television on, with the TV on? Now they tell you that's the worst thing in the world you can do to get a good night's sleep. Well, why do we do that? It's because we're trying to distract our minds, aren't we? It's like, if I don't turn the TV on, then my mind's going to worry about this or think about that. So we watch TV or iPad. Some of you, it's not your TV. You watch your iPad or your computer. And it's all to distract our minds. We asked you last week, what keeps you up at night? And um, the, the number one and two answer by a big margin was relationships and money. And because we're distracted about money, because we're worried about money, because we're thinking about money, we, um, we can't sleep. We got insomnia. And then you, you come to church this weekend and we're doing what we do every May is we're going into a new season of Temple Centurion. And Steph and I were out here a few moments ago and we're challenging you. We're challenging you to give above and beyond your regular tithes and offering. And for, for yeah, uh, so you're pressuring people to do tithes and offerings. By the way, the seeker-driven um, <clears throat> way of doing quote-unquote church um, is the most expensive way you could possibly do it. And so they they basically have fallen back to the old covenant teaching of tithing, and uh, teach that unless you tithe, the destroyer will come and wreck your finances. No wonder people in mega churches are have insomnia and can't sleep at night. Some of us, it's like, well, I'm already up at night worrying about money. And now the church that I do love, the, the church that I have seen uh, make a difference in the world, the church that has impacted my life, is now asking me to do more or to do something. And, and I know that when that happens, I know there's some of us who's like, man, I don't know if I have the energy to even wrestle with that idea. I mean, I don't even know if I have the energy to think about it. I mean, God understands my situation, right? God understands I just got let go from my job or that my kids are just going to college or I just moved to a new home or we just started a new business. I mean, God, God, God understands. So I'm not, I'm not going to even think about it. Or I could do what a lot of people do is just not show up for the next few weeks. I don't even have to feel guilty then, you know. I don't have to wrestle with it because I don't have to think about it because I don't, I don't have to be there. And it's always amazing how many people choose to do that. 
what do we deal? How do we deal with all this stuff that's occupying our mind and it's keeping us up at night and robbing us of maybe the life that God says that we can have? Well, there's a man. Yeah, so uh, tithing can keep you up at night, you know, and then rob you of the life that God has for you, keeping you from your potential. Because, you know, potential church is all about, you know, helping you achieve your potential rather than making disciples and preaching repentance and the forgiveness of sins. In the Bible. How many of you have you ever heard of the nation of Israel? You guys know who I'm talking about over there in the Middle East, right? Raise your hand just so I can see we're all kind of on the same page. Watch the news occasionally. Or I've been to a geography class. But there's uh, the, the nation of Israel gets its name from one man. And I want to tell you his story because he gives us some solutions, I think, to insomnia. He had insomnia. So apparently Israel, this will be Jacob, had insomnia. Yeah. He, he stayed up late into the night with his mind wrestling with a whole lot of different things. Before his name was Israel, his name was actually Jacob. And he was born into a family of destiny. His grandfather was Abraham. He was born into a family of destiny. Maybe you are too. Now that's important because that's who God went to and said, I'm going to make you into a great nation one day. It was just Abraham and his wife, Sarah. And yet God said, you're going to be a great nation one day. More people than the sand on the seashore or the stars into the sky. Eventually, Abraham and Sarah did have a child. Anybody know what his name was? Isaac. All right. Isaac married a woman by the name of Rebecca. And Rebecca got pregnant. And she got pregnant with twins. With twins. That, anybody, I always wanted, when I was growing up, I always wanted to be a twin. I always thought it'd be cool, you know, to be able to talk to one another without talking. Just through your mind, I guess, or however twins do that. But, but she had twins. And these twins, they couldn't get along. I mean, they wrestled with one another. The Bible says that even inside of her womb, they, they, they couldn't get along. So she goes to God and she's like, God, what's up with this? And here's what God says. He says two very important things. First of all, he says, he says you have two nations in you. Wow, I thought I just had two babies. You mean I got two, two nations in me? And he says, they're, they're at battle one another. Then he said this, get this. He says, and the older will serve the younger. Now, that's a big deal during this time period because what he was saying is that the younger is going to receive the blessing. The younger is going to receive the birthright. And what was the birthright? What was the blessing? That they would be a great nation. And now- yeah, actually, it has more messianic implications there because um, the great nation and the world being blessed through the seed of Abraham. Yeah, th- that you're following the bloodline of Christ in the Old Testament. It's called the scarlet thread, if you would. In other words, what God said is the promise was going to go through the younger, not the older. Now, Esau was only older by just a few moments, right? He just it was born with Jacob hanging on to his heel, the scripture says. But God made this promise. Now, here's where Jacob does something I think many of us have done. God gives him a promise that he will be the person in which the nation is born and from whom the Messiah will come. And you know what Jacob thinks he needs to do? Help God. You you ever feel like that? I mean, in other words, this Bible is filled with all kinds of promises. Did you know that? There are promises in here about your love life. 
Come on, somebody. No, 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 no. There are promises in here about your finances. There are promises in here about your destiny, your eternity, your hell. I mean, there are all kinds of promises. Yeah, the Bible's about Jesus. It's not about your love life. Promises in here. And yet I see us all the time thinking we need to help God. We're like, I know that's what it says, but that would be impossible. So I better help him myself. Yeah, could you give me an example? You know, show me one of the promises regarding my love life that I need to help God out with. Right, we, we do that relationally. Some of us are in relationships, and the way we're living that relationship is not the way the Scripture says. But, but we're helping God, aren't we? Because we're like, well, if I'm not, you know, I don't want to be lonely. I don't want to. We talk about temple centurions financially. Temple centurions. That's the name of their giving campaign. The Bible talks about... Whatever we sow, we reap. In the same way in which we give, so will we also receive. But when there are opportunities to give, what do we do? Most of us, we try to help God. Right? Like we're like, I know God promised me that I'm going to have, you know, this company or I'm going to, you know, have this breakthrough or whatever it is. Yeah, when did God promise me a company or a breakthrough? I'm f- not familiar with those biblical texts there, Troy. And so rather than just trusting him, we help him. Well, that's what Jacob did. It's a very normal thing to do. And here's what he did. Did you know his name means deceived or liar? Deceiver or liar? So Jacob just did, I guess, what his name implied. The first thing he did is deceive his brother and he got his birthright. Then he deceived his father. Yeah, actually, uh, Jacob did not deceive his brother. Um his brother came in famished from being out in the field and uh, sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. And, uh, and uh, so, yeah, the, and Scripture actually faults Esau for that, not Jacob. Remember, his father was Isaac, and Isaac was growing old, and it was time for Isaac to give out the blessing. And Isaac was wrestling with whether he was going to do what God wanted him to do anyways. And so Jacob comes in and he disguises himself as the older one because he's afraid that God... Yeah, you're leaving out the part that his mother had something to do with this. And she was acting in accord with God's word and Isaac was acting in an evil way. I recommend going back, if you haven't heard Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley's sermon on this story, uh, you can find it in the archives of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, he's you know preaching on the story of uh, Isaac and Jacob and, uh, and Esau. And uh, worth listening to because uh, Pastor Charmley actually pays very close attention to the exegetical details and does something that uh, Troy Gramling is not doing thus far, and that is he actually reads the biblical text and then exegetes it. God won't step in and take care of this. Uh, let me show you um, that scripture. It's found in, what is it, Genesis 25, I guess? It says, so Jacob took the food. He was asking for some food. Yeah, so you're you're picking up in the middle of the story, in the middle of the chapter. Again, weird thing here. I mean, how many of you, when you buy a book, you know, you you've you've heard from a friend that such and such a novel is is just gripping, and you know, and so they say, you know, you got to read this, and so they say, well, you know, okay, when you're done reading it, would you pass it along to me? So you know, they finish the book and they pass it along to you, and so. It's one of those days where, you know, it just feels like a reading day. And so, you know, kind of you, you, you grab a throw blanket and you, you make yourself a, you know, a nice cup of, you know, of deluxe, you know, 
floofy tee or whatever. And, and so you sit down and, you know, you got your fuzzy bunny slippers on and you pull the book out and you, you can't wait to read this. And so you don't open up to page one. You open up to page 196 and then you start reading. Who does that? Nobody does that. Why is he doing this? His dad and Isaac answered and asked this question. Who are you? He says, who are you? Are you, say it with me, Esau or Jacob? Esau or Jacob? And who did he say? And Jacob replied, it's, it's what? Yeah. One more time. Two. Yeah, it's Esau. He lied. And he gave him the blessing. And he gave him the birthright. Can you imagine how Esau felt when he got home? He's ticked. I mean, he was WWF ticked. He was ready to take out Jacob. And not only was he ready to take him out, he said he's going to kill him. He said, my dad's about to die. And once we're through with the morning, I'm going to take his life. Jacob, you're not going to live much longer. So Jacob did what, again, many of us would do in his effort to try to help God bring about his destiny. He now runs from it. What? So he's read exactly two verses at this point, and the things he's saying are like groan worthy because they're not even accurate. Because he has to leave. Where are Jacob and Esau and Isaac? They're in the promised land. They're in the land that God had promised to Abraham. They're in the land of their destiny. And now Jacob has to run from his dream because he didn't trust God and instead tried to help God because... He's scared to death that Esau is going to mess him up. And he ends up uh, in the land of his uncle and Laban. And he gets married looking for happiness, basically. He gets married looking for happiness. Marries this wonderful woman. Marries another woman he's not that pickled with, but he becomes wealthy. I mean, a lot of things in his life trying to trying to find that happiness. Again, I think you and I can relate. And God comes. Yeah, poor poor Jacob. He was looking for love and happiness in all the wrong places. Sounds like you know he was living a country and western song. To him, and tells him that it's time for him to return. It's like, you, you know what? You've been here long enough. You've been running from your destiny for long enough. Now, And yet when you read, you know, Genesis 27, 28, 29, 30, you know, and, you know, and just keep reading. You, there's nothing in there about Jacob running from his destiny or God saying it's time for you to return to your destiny or anything of the sort. This is a weird Cliff Notes version of the story. And all of the facts are wrong. This is why you should read the originals rather than read Cliff Notes. I'm just saying. It's time to go back. Now, do you, think about Jacob. Why did Jacob think he was here and his destiny was over there? What did he think his problem was? Esau. Jacob thought that he always had thought that Esau was his problem, that Esau was in the way of him truly being who God had created him to be. And now God comes and he says, I'm going to take you to your destiny. I'm going to take you to your promised land. But what Jacob didn't know is that God knew that Jacob wasn't quite ready. And so he was what is going to actually do some things in his life. I want to show you this scripture because I don't want you to miss it. In 31.3, it says, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Read these four words out loud with me. Return. Yeah, return to the land. What's he talking about? Of your father, 
which is Isaac, and your grandfather, which is Abraham, and I will be with you. He makes a promise. He says, time to go home. You know the first thing Jacob does? <laughs> he, he tries to help God. He, try, he comes up with a plan. Because Esau, he's like, how can I go home? Esau's going to kill me. So he divides his family into two groups, thinking, well, if Esau kills one, at least the other will get away. You know? He sends Esau all these gifts. He rains money down on Esau and hopes that Esau will just forget about the whole deal. I mean, he, 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 he's trying to, he hasn't learned his lesson. He's trying to help God. Some people, maybe even some of us, never really learned that lesson. You know what God has promised, but it's so difficult just to trust that he'll really do what he said he would do. What exactly did God promise? And so Jacob begins the journey home. Along the way, God stops him because God's got some things that he wants to teach him. And if you have your Bible, or I think it's there in your outline, I want us to look at Genesis 32. Now, I'm going to ask you to stick with me. There are 10 verses here, but I want to read them because I want you to see that here is the solution to insomnia. Okay? Verse 22. During the night, Jacob couldn't sleep, so he got up and he took his two sons, his wives, his servants, his 11 sons, and he crossed the river. After taking them to one side, he then sent all of his possessions over as well. This left Jacob alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled him until dawn began to break. So they wrestled all night long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did. And it just so happens the the person who Jacob was wrestling with was the pre-incarnate Christ. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of his socket. It doesn't say he tore it, you know, out of socket or that he pulled it out of socket. He just touched it. The man said, let me go for dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you, what's the next word? Yeah, unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. And he replied, well, my name's Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel. Because you have fought with God and with men. And you have what? You have won. That's pretty. Yeah, this is the cure for insomnia. I've been looking for this. I mean, if only I knew that I, this would be the cure for insomnia. I'd had a lot better sleep, sleep at night, you know? A big deal. Jacob's like, well, tell me your name. He's like, why do you want to know my name? The man replied. And then he blessed Jacob. And then Jacob called this place a place. Here's what it means. I have seen God's face. I've seen God face to face. And my life has been spared. And the scripture says that there are even Jewish people today who won't eat the thigh because of this story. Now, what's interesting to me when I read this story is look with me again in verse 24, okay, of chapter 32. It says, this left Jacob all alone in the camp. And uh, here's the word that needs to be highlighted. A man came. Who was this man? Wasn't Esau, was it? Who was Jacob afraid of? He was afraid of Esau. Esau, his boys had told him, was on his way with 400 soldiers. Who did Jacob think his problem was his whole life? Esau. Esau was in his way of the birthright. Oh, man. 
Yeah, he's sticking all kinds of stuff into these texts. It is just, it's not there. Esau was in his way of the blessing. Esau was in the way of his promise. Esau was the reason that he was in a foreign land. Esau was the reason that he was worried about the future. He saw Esau as his problem. But when he ends up in a wrestling match, it's not with Esau. It's actually with God. Yep, it is. And we're going to discover in a moment how we know that. Yeah, please tell me more about that. Yeah. But he's wrestling with God. And here's what I wrote down in my notes. Is that his problem wasn't what he thought it was. He wasn't wrestling with what he thought was his problem. He was wrestling with God. And I got to thinking, I wonder how many of us are wrestling with something that we believe is the problem when in reality, it's not the problem. In other words, you think the fact that your your supervisor is the problem. If they could just give you that raise, if they could just give you that promotion. The banker's the problem because if he could just give you that loan, you could start your business. Your spouse is the problem because they just can't understand where you're coming from. Your kids are the problem because they're just creating so much trouble. Your health is the problem because if you just felt better, you could make it. So notice what he's doing here. Apparently, uh, Genesis 32 is really a parable, and it's a parable And the reality that it's pointing to is your life. You know, difficulty with your boss, things not going so good with the missus, you know, things like that. So this is a parable, and, you know, it's pointing to you and your life. Oh, boy, this is a problem. In other words, you got all these things that you think are the problem that are keeping you from your destiny, when reality, you're not wrestling with any of those. You're wrestling with God. See, Jacob had all this pain in his life. And this pain was allowed in his life by God. This wrestling match takes place. And it's painful for Jacob. The most pain that he'd ever experienced in his life when, it, when he just touched his hip socket. And it was God he was wrestling with. It wasn't the devil he was wrestling with. It wasn't the banker he was wrestling with. It wasn't Esau that he was wrestling with. It was God he was wrestling with. And I submit to you that there are many of us here that think we're wrestling with one thing or another. But in reality, you have spent your whole life wrestling with God. Uh, oh, this is painful. And he has allowed the pain that's in your life there for a couple of reasons. Because if... He is not going to allow us into our destiny until we're ready for it. <coughs> yes, excuse me. Almost threw up there a little bit in my mouth. Yeah, so God's got not going to let us into our destiny until we do what again? Until the priority of it is right. I think uh, here's the first. Yeah, until the. Yeah. This is not what this text is saying. This is not about you and your destiny. First thing is that. He, he, he is, God is wrestling with Jacob, first of all, because he wants to reveal our, his weakness. Our, his weakness. What? How am I? I'm not in this text. He wants to reveal Jacob's weakness. He wants to reveal our weakness. Yeah, you, you just said Jacob's weakness and then you put me in there. I, I'm not in there and neither are you. When he touched the hip of Jacob, it was the first time in Jacob's life that he realized he wasn't sufficient. He knew that he was going to have to stand before Esau and there was nothing he was going to be able to do. Uh, where is this, this internal dialogue about Jacob found in this text? He wasn't going to be able to deceive. He wasn't going to be able to plan. He wasn't going to be able to strategize. He was disabled. 
He was weak. See, my prayer is, is that while all of us will say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we agree with Paul, I must decrease so he can increase. But in reality, it's not the way we live our lives. We don't really believe that God will do what he said he would do. We're just like Jacob. God came and he said, it's time for you to go home. And hey, Jacob, I'm going to go with you. Doesn't matter who Esau is. Doesn't matter how many enemies. I'm going to go with you. And the first thing Jacob does is he prays and he says, God, I need you to go with me. And then he comes up with a plan to make it all work out as if God were not going to go with him. See, wouldn't it be wonderful that whether it be someone on the side of the road that's homeless, or if it were Temple Centurion, or if it were time to give at the end of the service, you didn't really have to fight with God. You didn't have to wrestle, right? Because the moment that happens, whether you're driving up on a car and you see somebody and they're holding a sign. Yeah, what you're saying at this point makes no sense because I'm not in this text and neither are you. Or whether it be Stephanie and I out here a few moments ago and we're talking about Temple Centurion and we're talking about going above and beyond. Or whether it be the end of the service and we're going to pass that bucket right in front of you. There's a wrestling match that begins in many of our lives. We wrestle with whether we can afford it or not. We wrestle whether or not it's a wise thing to do. We wrestle with whether or not we trust the church or we trust that man or woman on the side of the road. It's a wrestling match. But what if you just trusted God? What if you just really believed that when God says, whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap? What if you really believed that God said, in the same way in which you give, so will you also receive? Wouldn't that be incredible? See, as Christ followers, we talk to the world all the time about how we believe God. But it's really just a bunch of baloney. We don't. We really don't. We proclaim all the time to have the answer. But when you look into our lives, we don't. We don't have joy that they don't have. We don't have hope that they don't have. We live our lives just as frightened as if someone who doesn't even believe there is a God. And I just got to ask the question, isn't there more than that? The reason we as Christ followers can't sleep at night is because we really don't trust him. We're just like Jacob. Now, there's, a, there's an aspect to this that's true, that, that we do worry because we don't trust God. So in a weird way, he's landed on a real problem, but his exegesis at this point is, it's not even exegesis. It's narcissistic eisegesis. Real problem, false way of approaching it. God's made all these promises in the world to us, and you and I stay up at night trying to figure out how we're going to make sure they happen. How we're going to make sure we can pay the month, our, our, our mortgage at the end of the month, even though God's promised us he'll take care of that if we'll trust him. Figure out how in the world we're going to make this relationship work. And when God said, you know what? I'll take care of that if you'll trust me. Yeah, yeah. Where are these promises again that you're making for God promise? We're, we're just like Jacob. We're wrestling, thinking that something else is our problem. When in reality, the one that we're wrestling with is God. And what if we could get to a place where we just believed him? Here's the other thing I think. Yeah, I, I'll believe real promises that God has really given me. I think the reason he was wrestling is I think he was trying to remind Jacob of our unhappiness. Now, that seems like a weird thing to remind us. or rem- To remind Jacob of our unhappiness? What? Remind Jacob of our unhappiness. But Jacob had spent his whole life trying to be someone 
that he thought would make him happy. Jacob had spent his whole life doing things, trying to find this real joy. I, I think it's the reason he lied to his dad. Yeah, where are you finding this? I mean, you're psychologizing Jacob without any texts that say this is what the inner dialogue was going on inside of Jacob. I just think he wanted his dad to say, you're special. You're important to me. I- <laughs> uh, so apparently Jacob had daddy issues and just wanted his dad to say, you're special. Really? I value you. I think it's the reason that he deceived Laban and it's the reason that he went after the wealth and it's the reason that he ended up with a couple of wives and it's the reason... Uh, Jacob deceived Laban? I think it was Laban that deceived Jacob. All of this stuff, he was just looking for happiness and he had a lot of things, a lot of blessings, right? That's what we'd call them, blessings. He still wasn't happy. See, God is going to reveal to Jacob what... And where real happiness comes from. And I think it is so important because I'm not sure that we have it either. I mean, while all of us here don't have everything, the majority of us here, we have something. Some of you have your health. Right? Even though we live in a world. Is he exegeting or is he just musing at this point? Where there are people who are disabled. There are people who are living with disabilities. There are people here who are living with deadly disease and and you're healthy, but it's really not enough, is it? Because you still wake up some days and you're depressed. You're discontent. You're you're discouraged. You're you're unhappy. Some of you here, you married a good person. I mean, you you, you know, you got your issues, but man, you love them and they love you and, and you've enjoyed the years that you spent together, but you're still not happy. You still wake up some days and you're depressed and you're still discontent. You're, I mean, we talk about it as Christ followers, but I, I, we don't have it. You got a nice house or, or, or a car or maybe your wardrobe or, or whatever it is that you have when it comes to material things. And yet you're not happy. We're a lot like Jacob. And I think God wrestles, God allows this pain into Jacob's life so that Jacob can begin to discover where real happiness comes from. And I think that God does. And there's no text that even talks about Jacob struggling with happiness. That's the same thing in our lives. Because as much as we like to judge the world and talk about what really makes us happy, can I tell you, in over 25 years in ministry, I've seen very few people who are really happy. Oh, they're happy in church. Praise God. Glory. Hallelujah. They're trying to be somebody that they think if others see, then, you know, they will admire. But then when they go out those back doors, not a real peace, not, not, not a real joy. We struggle with the same insomnia. And so I think this wrestling match happens because God, God wants to show us that there is more. And I am so thankful for that because I do not want to live my whole life. And not have all that God says is available to me when it comes to knowing him. So how do we do that? How do we... Yeah, how do you do that? I mean, because what's the practical application with this wrestling with God thing that we're supposedly metaphorically, parabolically doing? Break the power of insomnia in our lives. Yeah, please share with the group. How, How do we overcome our inability to sleep so that we can truly have peace? 
yeah, see, because, yeah, Genesis 32 has the key to uh, uh, us overcoming insomnia. I think the answer's here, and I'll I'll give them to you real quick. Here's the first one. If you want to jot it down, is you have to go at it alone. It has to be a personal experience or a personal (laughs) So application number one, if you want to overcome insomnia, because, you know, Genesis 32 says that, you know, Jacob was alone all there by himself. So, you know, we got to we got to go it alone. Yeah. Yeah. That's the weirdest application I've heard in a while. Relationship. Look back with me in verse 24. This this left Jacob all what? (laughs) Yeah, because Genesis 32, 24 says he was all alone. Therefore, application number one, if you want to overcome insomnia, is you got to go it alone. Unbelievable. What's even more bizarre is that people who have an education, you know, clearly they're capable of reading. They've graduated from high school and college. They are attending this church and thinking that they're that they're getting fed something spectacular, when instead, if they have a brain and an education, they should be getting up and leaving, saying this is utter nonsense. All alone, his family's on the other side of the river, and Jacob is facing God all alone. Have you ever wondered why is it that you know somebody can come to church and and they have an experience? And, and, it, and it changes them. I mean, they, they're faithful to be to God's house. They drop some money maybe in the bucket. They, they sing and they truly enjoy the singing, you know. And, and He keeps harping on the money thing. And, and they go out and they serve, maybe help the poor. But then they move to a new community. They don't find a church or whatever. And it all just kind of fades away. Or maybe they move to college. They go off to college. And, and all of a sudden, it, it's, it, they're not involved like they were. They're not engaged in the same way. I mean, how, how does that happen? I, I think it happens because they never experienced a personal. No, it has everything to do with the fact that they probably experience complete vapid preaching that's all focused on law rather than proclaiming the scriptures in depth finding Christ in every text and proclaiming law and gospel, sin, grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins. Relationship. It never got personal for them. See, it can be fun to hang out together and be encouraged and inspired by one another, to be reminded that you are a child of the King, that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Dream big, run fast. We're here. We'll hold you up. We'll lift you. That's what Christianity is all about. Really? It can be fun to do all of those kind of things. But if all you have, I wrote it down like this. Tyler and I were talking about it. When our relationship with God has to be more than just coming to church. Our relationship with God has to be more than just coming to this place. See, for some of us, this is our relationship with God. Our relationship with God is defined by what we do with one another. Now, it's important that we hang out together. I say it like this, your faith is lived out in community, but it is experienced alone. In other words, it it begins with just you and God. Wow, this is straight up communitarianism. I don't even think he knows what the word communitarianism is or even means, but he could not have actually picked 
a more concise definition of con communitarianism. Communitarianism, by the way, denies the existence of the individual in time and space, and instead the organic entity of note is the community. But face-to-face -face before God, there is no community. There is just the person. I mean, wow. <laughs> That's just straight-up communitarianism. Because when you lose your job, guess what? You're alone in that. I mean, oh, we're going to pray for you. We're going to cheer you on. You might even throw a few, a few dollars your way because we like you. But you're going to face the emotion of that alone. That's the hard thing about being ill. If you've ever had like a long-term illness or you had pain that doesn't go away, you can have people and they'll pray for you and they'll be there to help you all they can. But in the, in the night, when the pain seems to be the worst, guess what? You're all by yourself. Nobody can make it go away. Nobody can get inside of your body and feel what you're feeling. I think when, that's why when you see these mass suicides or when you see a father or mother, you know, kill their spouse and kill their children before committing suicide, it's because they don't want to die alone. But the truth is, is you will face death alone. I mean, we'll, we'll, right, we'll all be there. Some of us will be in the waiting room. We'll be praying for you. Your family will probably be in there, and they'll be holding your hand and, and, and everything. But when you die, you will die alone. And we'll pray, and we'll cry, and we'll all get together and talk about how great you are. We'll eat a few, you know, baked potatoes and some, and some coleslaw, and then we'll go watch a movie or something. Right? I mean, we'll all go on. You, 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 you will be alone in that without Christ. And the sad thing is, is I've seen a lot of Christ followers who are scared of death. That's probably because they haven't had Christ and him crucified for our sins placarded to them Sunday after Sunday. Instead, they've had, well, vapid sermons that preach themselves into biblical texts, and rather than proclaiming Christ and him crucified and a merciful God and Savior and calling people to sin, uh, not to sin, but to repent of their sins and to be forgiven by the shed blood of Christ Sunday after Sunday. We Christians need to hear the gospel. And if you're not hearing the gospel, instead all you're hearing is this life application and law and go and live your destiny kind of stuff, which is another version of law. It's not even biblical law. It's man-made law. Um, you know, you're going to get to the end of the, your life and you're going to wonder, did I do enough? Did, did I fulfill my destiny? I, I don't know. Is God happy with me? I'm not sure. Yeah, and you no wonder they're afraid when they die. I'm not talking about wanting to die. I'm talking about they're just scared of death. And, and I don't want to be afraid of it. Because God says that there's got to be more to it. And the only way that I'm going to experience that is if when, when I am willing to be alone with him. See, I'm not asking you if you've been baptized. Yeah, that's not what this text is saying. Baptized. I'm not asking you if you're a part of potential church. I'm not asking you if you grew up in a Catholic family. I'm asking you, do you know Jesus? Not do you... Yeah, so this becomes the law of relationship that you have to fulfill, which is a false gospel, by the way. you know the hymns? Not do you know a few scriptures? Not have you put some money in the bucket? Or not were you confirmed as a child? I'm asking you, do you know Christ? Do you know him personally? I was reading a book and it said that one of the reasons that as Christ followers... We have such a hard time praying for longer than 10 minutes is because our prayers are only made up of asking God for things. Now, the Bible tells us that we're to ask God for things. We're to thank him for what he's done for us. But 
But there's more than that. And if that's all that there is, you and I will never find the happiness that God says is available to us. And the world will never really care about what we say because what we say is a lie. You'll never be happy and everything you say is a lie unless you're praying for more than 10 minutes at a time. Law, not gospel. I mean, think about it. If we really had what we said we had, do you think the people wouldn't be breaking down those doors to get it? The problem is, is they live around us and they work around us and they see our lives outside of this building and what we say we have. To be honest, we just don't have it. We don't have the joy that we say we have. We don't have the peace that we say we have. We don't have the hope that we say we have. And is that the way it's got to stay? Is it got to be just this big farce where we pretend and we're always kind of, when I was a kid, we we read this book called The Emperor's Clothes. I can't remember, something like that. And basically he got this like really cool outfit and, and the tailor brought it to him, but he told him it was invisible. And so he put it on and he walked through the streets. In reality, he was just walking in his underwear. But everybody was afraid to tell the king. So they told him he looked awesome. And I wonder sometimes if you and I as Christ followers, we all talk to one another about how great our life is and how good our God is. But in reality, when we get alone, we wonder if that can truly be experienced. Now, this is an interesting confession on his part. This, I think, is, uh, this is telling us about his internal talk. And the doubts that he has about the message he's preaching, because he's not preaching the biblical gospel, Christ and him crucified for our sins, nor is he preaching Christ out of every text because the scriptures are about him. And so I think we're hearing from Troy Gramling what it is that he struggles with within his own self regarding the doubts, regarding the message that he's preaching. And he should have doubts because there is no assurance of God's mercy and love and forgiveness in the law light messages that he's preaching regarding achieving your potential and your destiny. And so he's talking about the inauthenticity that happens uh, with uh, Christians who put up this facade. Oh, God is great. Oh, things are going fantastic. And the, oh man, God is for me. and I'm the head and not the tail. And you get them home and they go, oh man, my life is really messed up. And they have no assurance. So he's he's touched on a real issue here. And this is caused by the fact that he's not actually preaching the gospel. We wonder if anybody is really experiencing it and that there must be something wrong with me because I'm not experienced that. See, it begins with you and I having enough courage to just get alone with God, to get to know him. Yeah, getting alone with God isn't going to help at this point. You need some kind of assurance and you're just basically prescribing yet another law that I've got to keep if I want to have assurance. But then my question is, if I, after I do this, how do I know if I've done enough? Uh, yeah, is, is enough? How much relationship building do I need to do with Jesus on a weekly basis, daily basis, in order to finally get a feeling that maybe, just maybe, I'm doing enough of it? You know what I'm saying? Now, out of that comes life in community and all other kinds of things. But it begins with getting to know Jesus. Just starting with that simple relationship. Here's the second thing if you want to jot it down. If you really want to know Jesus, you're going to have to spend some time reading his word, hearing what he's done for you. Because you have to be honest about your name. Mm-hmm. So step number one is you got to go it alone. Step number two is you got to be honest about your name. Because, yeah, that Jacob had to be honest about his name. Oh, this is awful.
seriously, there are no applications in this text that at least these applications. This is unbelievable. <sighs> totally does he has no clue what this text is about. Who you really are. Look with me in chapter 27. <clears throat> Remember he asked uh, the man wrestling, ask him a name. He says, what is your name? And the man, remember, who the, this is God, basically, right? God asked him, he says, what's your name? And the man, uh, re- re- he replied. Now, remember the last time Jacob was asked his name? You remember what he said? He said Esau, didn't he? He lied. This time he says what? Jacob. Remember what Jacob meant? Yeah, but you got to remember, there's a lot of time that passed, and his wives knew his name. They called him Jacob. They didn't call him Esau. It's not like he put on a pretense with Uncle Laban and said he was Esau when he was Jacob. Deceiver, liar, one grabbing for something that he didn't uh, own. See, you know what Jacob was doing here? He was coming clean. He was repenting. His whole life, he had pretended to be somebody that he wasn't in hopes that if he... Yeah, again, he did not... There was one time he pretended to be somebody he wasn't. In the, oh. Pretended to be them, then he would discover happiness or he would discover joy. And that's not why he did that either. And God says that there is this destiny out here for you, Jacob. But you, you're not ready for that destiny because you don't know what real happiness is. Uh, no, God never said that at all. Not in Genesis 32, 31, 30. 29, 28, 27. Yeah, God never said any of that. Because who are you? Do you have enough courage to actually tell me who you are? I wrote this in my notes. You and I will never be who we were created to be until we're honest about who we are. Uh, Okay, there's something kind of true about that. If by... You know, by that you mean if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You might have a point if you'd steer it in that direction. You kind of brought up the hint that maybe there was some repenting going on here. Do we have enough courage to actually look into our lives and say, you know what? This is I'm Jacob. I'm I'm a liar. I'm a deceiver. A sinner. Yes. Uh huh. Jacob was trying to be who he thought would make him happy. And I, I just wrote some of this down. In your program, I gave you a little card like this. It says, what keeps you up at night? And I left a lot of it blank. And I left it blank so that you could write down who you are. Uh, If you don't give them an absolution and Christ crucified for their sins, you're not helping them. What's what's your name? What's my name? As I thought about that this week, I thought, I wonder, is your name... Is my name lonely? You just said to go it alone. Not not the life of the party. My name is not the life of the party. Is that a sin that I pretend to be because I think that if I'm the life of the party, everybody will like me? But in reality, I feel all alone. I mean, who 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 are we really? Are we Yeah, this is not a confession of sins. This is psychotherapy. Afraid? Not the brave person that we pretend to be. Are we a manipulator? 
Because when it comes to work, we, we, we just so badly want to get ahead that we work all the circumstances together and work all the circumstances around. Now, if you were to ask us, we would tell you, oh, we love it when somebody else wins. But the truth is, is when anybody else gets a promotion that we don't get, it makes us angry. Because truth be told, we're insecure. And while I would never publicly say, I can't handle the fact that you've got promoted and I didn't, that you have succeeded and I haven't. But if we're going to be honest about who we are, that's who we are honestly. That's who we are on the inside because we're always trying to manipulate and we're always trying to move things so that we can get ahead. And while if we don't have to hurt anybody, we won't. But if we need to, we, we will because at the end of the day, I need to be in that corner office. I deserve to be in that corner office. I deserve to have that kind of check. See, do we have the courage? When God says, who are you? Say, this is who I am. That I'm I'm insecure. Uh, How about sinner? Jesus said, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name. I pretend to be confident. Some would even call me arrogant, but the truth is, is I'm insecure. Oh, yeah, yeah. I feel like I need to get onto the psychology couch here, you know, and I don't maybe get into the fetal position and do an owl and Alda type cry or something. No, if I value, if I'm valuable or I'm a gossip. Because when I can tear other people down, I always, you know, disguise it or I always hide it, always pretend if that's not what I'm really after. But the truth is, is when I can tear somebody else down, I do feel better about myself. I don't feel quite as bad about myself. Please hear me, church. We can spend the rest of our lives pretending. You're going to talk about the sin of slander then, of lying and gossiping. Needing to be something that we're not. And the world can walk back and forth laughing at us because they know that And when it comes to authenticity, we do not have it because we don't have the courage to say this, this is who we are and this is what we're wrestling with and this is what we're struggling with. That's why I gave you that card. It's sometimes hard to just write it down. To just look into your own life and say, who am I pretending to be, but who am I? Not who was I created to be, but who am I really on this day? Yeah, and none of this has anything to do with a proper handling of Genesis 32. Because until we can do that, we'll never experience all that God says is available to us. Mm-hmm. We will never experience whatever God says is uh-huh, right. Yeah, which biblical texts say this? Because this is not found in Genesis. I want you to look. I spent a lot of time this week looking at just the white space on this card. And I, I want to ask you in this service to, to write it down, not, not abbreviations. I don't want you to write it in code. You know, it's not because somebody's going to see it or anybody care, it, but it's because it takes courage to even write it down sometimes. Who, who we really are. So we have to go at it alone. We have to be honest about our name. And then the last thing that, that he did is he had three-point application sermon here. And none of these applications are legit from the text. Hold on. Look with me in verse 26 and 29. Then the man said, let me go for dawn is breaking. Now, this is the first hint that he was wrestling with God. 
Because the scripture teaches us that no man can see the face of God and live. And so he tells Jacob, he's like, hey, the sun's rising. It's no longer going to be dark. You're going to be able to see me. And if you see me, you're going to die, Jacob. So you need to let me go. Dawn's here. You need to let me go. How does Jacob respond? He says, I will not let you go unless you what? Unless you what? Yeah, unless you bless me. Unless you bless me. He says, I'm going to hang on to you. Look with me in verse 29. He says, so tell me your name. Jacob says, well, tell me, you know, your name. He says, why do you want to know my name? Why do you want to know my name? And then he blessed him. He he hung on to him. This is the most important part of everything that I've talked about. Jacob realized that the blessing was more important than his life. See, Jacob knew the moment this man said this, Jacob was awakened, if he wasn't already when he touched his hip, that he was wrestling God. And he was well aware, because you can see it in the passage at the end of this uh, chapter, where he says, I survived seeing the face of God. Jacob knew what it meant for the sun to rise and for him to still have this man, God, in his grasp. But the blessing was more important than living. Now, what was the blessing? It was God himself. It was seeing who Jesus really is. Think about this. If if Jacob died, he would never go into the promised land. He would never get the blessings. He would never be the heir to the destiny and all that comes with being the founder of a nation. Always focused on the temporal rather than the messianic. And yet in that moment, Jacob is like, I have got to hang on. I've just got to see you because you are more important than any blessing that I might ever experience in my life. And wouldn't it be wonderful, church, that if you and I were so hungry and thirsty to see God, that, his, that the blessor would become more important than the blessing. In other words, that we weren't so focused on what God could do for us, but we were just focused on him. See, Jacob says that that yeah, is... Yeah, why don't you tell us then more about him? The key to the true peace you and I are looking for. And one of the reasons that we have yet to go into our promised land to experience the joy that God wants us to experience. Yeah, the promised the promise land is, you know, is type and shadow. Of the new heavens and new earth. Experience is because our focus is still on what God can do for us, not who he is. Not who he is. And Jacob is like, I'm going to hang on to you. And I am not going to let go of you because I have realized you're more important than the promised land. And that seeing you is greater than anything. Now, we're, we're church folk. Many of us. You hang out here a while. We all say that, don't we? Right? We all say, Jesus, what's the most important thing? Jesus, Jesus. Woo, I love you, Jesus. Right? We worship it. We say it. But we're focused on the, what he can do for us, not who he is. Are blessings wrong? No. But God is not just a giver of blessings. He is the blessing. And until we get there, Not pretend to get there. Not talk about getting there. I mean, really get there. So that whatever God asks us to do, we can trust him. We'll never have all that he says is available. In other words, you have to embrace the limp. 
the problems in Jacob's life were what allowed him to see God. So so let me ask you another way. How many times when problems come into our life, because when do you feel closest to God? When do most people? Let's put it, we won't ask you personally. That could, right, that could bring us conviction. Let's just think about most people. When do most people feel closest to God? It's when they're going through difficulties, right? So why is it that the moment you and I go through a difficulty, the first thing that we pray is that the difficulty would be removed? Right? We have yet to come to a place in our lives. I'm not saying where we, in some weird way, are praying for pain. No, no. I'm saying that our hunger and thirst for God is so great that if it takes pain in order to experience it, we're more than willing to go that journey. Yeah, again, you are wanting to create a thirst for God in people who have no concept of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You're expecting them to bear the fruit of the Spirit, which would also include a hunger and thirst for righteousness. But you're not going to get that by narcissizing biblical text and not proclaiming Christ from them and not calling them to repent and to be forgiven. Unbelievers who are dead in trespasses and sins, impenitent sinners who are not trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, cannot and do not bear the fruit of the Spirit. And so here you're trying to basically browbeat them. Hey, where's our hunger and thirst for God? And yet you are not preaching in a way that would create a hunger and thirst for God. Think about that. We continue. We're more than willing to go that path. I was reading a book by Dr. Larry Crabb. He's written a lot of books. He's passed. One of his books was called Finding God. Let me show you the dedication that he made. Can you put it on the big screen? It says... To the memory of Dr. Charles Smith, a mentor who prayed for his cancer to return, if it would bring him closer to God. In his last year, he found God in a measure he had never known. And then he died of cancer. When I read that, the first thing that came to my mind is that I'm not there yet. I'm not there. But that I don't want to settle for where I am because that's where I want to be. Because I, it's not until we get there that we can live in peace and we can die in peace. It's not until we get to a place where our thirst and hunger for God is so great that we can sleep at night. And the irony here is that he does not see, at least it has not dawned on him yet, that this totally contradicts this kind of thinking. You know, pray for his cancer to return if it means that he could be closer to God. You know, that's in the dedication that he just read. That this is in direct contradiction to the theology of Joel Osteen, which Troy Gramling is, well, a purveyor of and somebody who promotes. Weird. Because we know. Not just know in our heart, minds, but in our hearts and in our souls. God has this. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience, getting ready to do business with people. You know what my prayer has been for you and me this, as we go into this series? It's found in the wisdom writer in the book of Proverbs. Look at what he says. 
My prayer for us has been that your mind will be clear, free from fear. When you lie down to rest, you will be refreshed by sweet sleep. My, my, my prayer for you is whether it be the relationships, your health, or as we go into a new season of Temple Centurion, your finances. You could truly trust him. You really haven't told me what it is that I should trust him with or what he's done for me. I guess that every time there's an opportunity to be obedient, it's an opportunity for me to discover. Time to be obedient. This is all law now. Yeah the real priority that God is in my life. And Steph and I felt this nudge to come to South Florida, not to be a lead pastor, but just to serve. Or when it comes to Temple Centurion and it's time to give, my prayer is is that you and I won't settle. And that the world would see the real thing. The real thing that Jesus says is available. So I want you to look at that card. I don't want to challenge you. I know it takes courage, but I want to challenge you to write down your name. In other words, who you really are. And then we got these little crosses. And at the end of the service, if you would like to take that card, and uh, we got baskets, I think, all throughout the auditorium, where you can just drop that card in there. They're just going to be thrown away. And you can pick up one of these crosses. And it's kind of a symbol. Remember, it wasn't until he admitted that he was Jacob that God changed his name to Israel. It's not until you and I are willing to come clean, honest, that God can change us into who he's created us all along to be. It's my prayer for you. It's my, it's my prayer for me. So, if you would, bow your head. Yeah, um, I think we're done. So, Troy Grambling hands out little crosses without actually... Preaching the cross talks about importance of obedience and you know fessing up to who you are, repenting without forgiveness, confession without absolution, no Christ in Him crucified for our sins, and no reason really to trust God at all, at least none given to talk about what Christ has really done for us. Ultimately, that was moralistic therapy. And uh, it had something to do with God, but it doesn't have to necessarily be the Christian God. And really, over and again, you know, Troy Grambling demonstrates that the reason why potential church is no longer a church and only remains a church in potentia is because they're off mission. They're not making disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching all that Christ has commanded us to teach, proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name, Jesus' name, to all nations. That's the problem. 
So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook. Facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you. And the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ is vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>